When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine. Hosted by me, Danielle Robay. And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from The Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Creature Feature, a production of iHeartRadio. I'm your host of Mini Parasites, Katie Golden. I studied psychology and evolutionary biology, and today on the show, non-terrestrial, extraterrestrial. These non-alien life forms look more alien than the aliens in Avatar. From gloopy ghosts to glowing alien eyes, these animals may give us a hint at what could be in store for us on alien planets. Discover this and more as we answer the age-old question, is the Holy Grail just a pile of snot? Joining me today is friend of the show, particle physicist, and host of Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe, Daniel Whiteson. Welcome! Thank you very much. Happy to be here and happy to join in the blasphemy. (laughs) There's going to be a lot of things that spit in God's (laughs) eye on this episode, I believe. Uh... Yeah, and we've actually talked about this a bit. I, I've been a guest co-host on your show, Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe, and we've chatted from time to time about maybe the possibility of alien life. What do you think about that? Do you think that it's plausible that there are aliens out there? Are you a firm believer, or are you a skeptic, or are you a hoper? <laughs> I am both a skeptic and a hoper. I think that it's quite plausible that there could be alien life out there just because of the mathematics. We know that the universe is huge. I mean, there are trillions of galaxies out there. Each one has hundreds of billions of stars. And we now know that most of those stars have planets, many planets. And frequently, they will have Earth-like planets. So the sheer number of places that life like ours could evolve is overwhelming. On the other hand, we haven't found any of it, and we don't really know what the chances are for life to evolve on some Earth-like planet. Is it one in two? Is it one in a gazillion? We just don't know. So I'd love for there to be life out there, to talk to alien physicists about the secrets of the universe, but we just don't know. Well, here's a gotcha question. If there's life out there, why haven't they Mm -hmm. called us? (laughs) 
<laughs> I mean, they haven't called you. I've been chatting with them for years, Katie. I knew I Sorry. wasn't in the intergalactic group <laughs> chat. But it is a great question. It's a deep question, and it's a famous question. It's basically the Fermi paradox. Fermi, a physicist from decades ago, said, look, if there's so many planets and stars out there and the universe is quite old, billions of years old, plenty of time for civilizations to flourish and explore the galaxy, why has nobody contacted us yet? And of course, here we have to put in a corner all the theories of Navy pilots seeing UFOs suggesting that they actually are here. Uh, assuming that none of them have contacted us, it's a great question. Why haven't they? And there's a whole variety of theories suggesting that maybe aliens are, maybe alien civilization is just sort of short-lived, or maybe they're so alien that they're contacting us in a way we can't even imagine. Maybe their messages are washing over us right now. We just don't hear them. I choose to believe that whenever I'm missing a sock and I know I put it in the washer and it's just gone. It's, you know, it's, I put two <laughs> in the washer and one comes out and I'm sure a lot of people have experienced this. I believe that there is some kind of alien interference there where they're trying to do some sort of, uh, you know, flattening of a wavelength to communicate with us. But then all they're getting is a pile of socks. And so they think that we are a very sock-based uh, society on Earth. And Actually, so I have a physics-based explanation for your missing socks. Mm, yes? No, I think they've all been sucked up into the ozone layer in the upper atmosphere. Mm. Good. Yes. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a really fun question whether they're aliens and what they're like. And it also sort of reflects what we think about aliens. Like we are capable of thinking about aliens and searching for aliens essentially only in the way that we can think about aliens. But there's a possibility that aliens could be much weirder than we could possibly imagine biologically, technically, culturally, in every sort of avenue. And I think that some evidence to back that up is that we keep finding stuff on our planet, on Earth, mm -hmm. that is so alien to us that they aren't like in the sort of common depictions of aliens, the most, you know, things that I see are things like basically a humanoid, but green with bigger eyes <laughs> and maybe a huge head. Uh, you know, there are some more creative portrayals of aliens. One of my favorites actually is in the more recent movie, um, Nope. Uh, I don't know if you've seen that. Have you seen that, Daniel? I have not seen Nope. Nope. Highly recommend Nope to you because the depiction of the alien is really fun. I, I think, I mean, it's scary, but also really fun because it is, I'm not going to say too much because I don't want to spoil it, but it's it's all it, they did somewhat base it in marine biology, but you wouldn't necessarily know that uh, watching the movie. And it, it's 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 just a very delightful take on alien life. But yeah, our, our imagination is often like, well, maybe it's like humans, but blue and tall, and they <laughs> ride pterodactyls, and that's you know that's fun. I'm not gonna say that's a bad way to imagine things, but maybe that's not what it's like, and we only need to look at our own animals here on Earth, uh, especially the animals we find in the oceans, because they have had a very different evolutionary path from us, and it results in things that to us, terrestrial animals, look very alien. Uh, mm -hmm. And one I want to start with looks, 
I mean, it looks alien in sort of a, like, I feel like in the 60s, there were a lot of illustrations of alien planets that were just kind of surreal. Uh, sometimes they'd be like covers to some weird book that you'd find at like a used bookstore. And this one kind of gives me that vibe of these just super surreal uh, imaginings of like it's an alien but it's just a bunch of weird phalanges and it is called the Malibe Viridis uh, and it well I've shared an image of it with you Daniel how how would you describe this thing it looks like those toys you used to throw against the wall that would stick and then sort of roll down the wall bit by bit <laughs> I mean it just looks like a sticky blob sticky hands yeah Sticky hands, exactly. And, you know, your comment about it looking like the 60s makes me wonder if our depiction of alien, our imagination of aliens basically just depends on what the artists, what drug the artists are using <laughs> recently. <laughs> I Yeah, I mean, I think it is interesting. And maybe the drug is somehow stimulating parts of the brain that haven't been active since we ourselves were in the ocean and we were surrounded mm -hmm. by things like this. That's not very scientific, but I like to think that way. <laughs> um, but yes. Well, how long ago was this discovered? How long have we been aware of the Melibe Viridis and its bizarre alien sticky hands? Now, we have been aware of it since the late 1800s, I believe. That doesn't mean it is something that's well known. So. It is a nudibranch, uh, which is a type of sea slug. Uh, now, what I'm seeing here is basically it is this pale green thing that has like a flat, translucent pancake for a head. And then off of that is a long tube. And then coming off the tube are these like little paddles that kind of go down its sides. And there's six, seven? seven of them on each side. Um, <laughs> I'm just describing what I'm seeing in this photo. And now we're sure this thing is not actually an alien. I mean, if aliens actually came to Earth and landed in the oceans, would marine biologists just be like, look at the weird things our oceans can produce? Yeah, I mean, we would probably have no way of knowing unless we could <laughs> somehow trace any like, it's not like we could necessarily find alien DNA and know it's alien DNA if they're mm. using the same amino acids that we mm -hmm. use. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, we wouldn't necessarily know. I'm going to say the fact that they were able to track it to other species of nudibranchs and sea slugs means that it would have to be all or nothing. Like every sea slug would have to be an alien or none of them are. Which, you know, jury's out on that. But <laughs> And do we understand the form of this? Like why does it have a transparent pancake head? It, can we understand everything that this thing is about in terms of like its evolution? You know, it has to have this kind of head to survive this kind of experience or this kind of environment? Or is it really just like the random walk that evolution can do through time? Well, we don't know everything about it, but we do know some things. And we do know about its weird pancake head. So uh, it has this weird disc-like protuberance on its head, and it's called the oral veil. Uh, so it has actually lost its radula teeth. So radula are like, it's like a little circle teeth that you find on things like snails and slugs. Um, and it does not have a radula. It doesn't have these teeth. And so instead, it uses this disc of very thin flesh 
as a net. So it kind of casts this out, searches through the substrate. It actually likes to be on the ocean floor, not the deep ocean, but just like, you know, sort of a medium level ocean floor. It can swim freely, but it spends most of its time snooting around in the substrate in the sand of the ocean floor. And it'll stick this weird disc out onto the sand, onto the substrate. And can it eat pancakes with its pancake head? That would be adorable. I don't know of it eating pancakes. I think they'd have to be very small pancakes, maybe like miniature crepes. But mm, commu- it, communion wafers, communion wafers, communion wafers. Blaster. This is well. It's funny you mention this because I, there is a species of Malibe that gets a little bit religious, or at least has a cult-like following. So, uh, but for for most Malibe, this oral veil they lay it out they're they're searching and then it has all these papillae so papillae are just sort of sensory buds uh, on something we have papillae on our tongues there's papillae on a lot of different things um, but these ones are specifically to detect prey and then once one of these are triggered by say like a tiny crustacean it quickly retracts its oral veil like a big net that you're casting in and it pulls in uh, it's prey, like a, a teeny tiny crustacean, and it eats it. So <laughs> it is a predator, which I always, I find it just a little extra creepy whenever we find something this weird looking that is a predator. Mm. Yeah, it's very sneaky. It doesn't look ferocious. No. It looks like you could just sort of step on it and move on. I mean, but we maybe could. that's its whole sure. strategy. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, how big is this thing? Is it like the size of a bathtub or the, like the no. size of your hand? Gosh, if it was, I would just, I would leave Earth. Uh, but <laughs> no, it's this one. So species vary, vary in size. This one, the Veritas species is about, I think it's, uh, yeah, it's 15 centimeters long or around six inches long. So mm. it's not that big, but it's also not like microscopic. So it's, it is, it is a thing, right? Like I feel like six inches is definitely a threshold for me where if I find mm-hmm. it crawling on me, I'm upset. <laughs> Especially if it hunts in packs, right? Like 5,000 <laughs> of these things could probably take you down. Well, I don't know that they hunt in packs, but they do congregate. So mm. uh, especially for mating. Uh, now, there are many species of Malibe that are found throughout the Indo-Pacific tropical oceans. One of them is called Malibe leonida. Uh, it is, uh, it, it can vary from sort of a greenish color to a pinkish color. And uh, they can sometimes be found in these large clusters in kelp forests. And they are probably clustered like this because they are exchanging genetic information with each other in a big party. Uh, they are simultaneous hermaphrodites, meaning that they have both male and female gonads at the same time. Uh, and like other species of Malibe, they do mate together and fertilize their eggs internally, which they will lay in long ribbon-like strands. So, you know, they have a fun and free love life. And do biologists speculate that if there are oceans on other planets that life may have formed in, that the same sort of structures may arise? Do they think these things are inevitable? Like, do we see multiple convergent forms of evolution getting to this sort of structure on Earth? Or is there just like one example here and it may be weird? 
You know, it's interesting because there are, I don't think all biologists are agree on this, but I have seen, and I personally kind of subscribe to this idea that there are things that happen so frequently that if you have similar circumstances, right, if you have a planet that has conditions similar to Earth and you're lucky enough to get that primordial soup or like I've probably talked about on the show before, it's probably more of a primordial baklava, uh, just these <laughs> layers of uh, mineral or rock in between which these little protein chains kind of hide out and form these chains and then um, are able to start to create sort of the building blocks of life, the uh, DNA strands. And so uh, once you have that, I think a lot of these structures, given the same pressures, are pretty inevitable. So for instance, um, one of the, I don't know if you can describe it as alien because it's so familiar to us, but it is very strange, is the octopus. And when we see the octopus, we're like, oh, it's like a little noodly puppy that we found in the sea because it's got these big eyes. It's a uh, very kind of curious, you can sort of almost feel the octopus's emotions in a way by watching its body language. There's this idea that maybe they dream uh, because they change their color patterns uh, in their sleep and it seems to be like maybe they're having a dream about hunting because the color patterns on their skin, their chromatophores that change color uh, are do sort of a hunting pattern while they're asleep. And then they play, they like will toss objects in water over and over again, which seems pretty indicative that they're doing it for fun. And they have evolved completely independently from almost all life on uh, on sort of the, the terrestrial part of Earth. Like we diverged from octopuses back from like basically a flatworm stage, like from this little tiny worm. So they evolved all these things independently, like these complex eyeballs, uh, their complex brains. They evolved that independently from all mammals, all reptiles, birds, other fish. So this idea isn't that, that... Isn't that like a really hopeful sign for those of us who are looking forward to talking to aliens, that intelligence sort of evolves in two different environments and ends up sort of similar? Yeah, I think it is. And I, I think that... I think what we have to think about in terms of intelligence is like when we communicate with other animals, it can be really difficult, especially when we try to communicate using human-like communication methods. So there's these famous examples of trying to teach primate sign language, and so far it really hasn't worked that well. There's the stories of like Coco, the gorilla, and Nim Chimsky, the chimpanzee. And <laughs> even though there was a lot of sort of uh, PR about Coco of having the sign language work, it wasn't really clear that it did. Uh, the The project with Nim Chimsky really didn't work out that well. Uh, and I is think- Is that a ploy on Noam Chomsky? It, it is because it was actually, <laughs> they named it as sort of a, a tease, a little bit of a jape, uh, making fun of Noam Chomsky because they were trying to- I think prove Noam Chomsky wrong to say that no chimpanzees could uh, learn a human syntax, uh, whereas Noam Chomsky was skeptical of the idea that primate language uh, has some of the 
necessary characteristics that human language has. And ultimately, I think in their pro- their project wasn't very good. It wasn't well designed. I mean, neither of these uh, sign language projects with either of these apes were particularly well designed. So it's hard, you know, they were not, it was not a good study. It was not like a double blind study because like the caretakers really loved uh, the like Coco the gorilla. And so when they would interpret the signs, they would maybe a lot of it would be sort of what they are sort of interpreting in that situation. So um, there was not really any evidence that the primates could use sign language in the way that humans could. But I think that it is a little bit of hubris for us to think that we could communicate with something by making them come to us and use like Mm -hmm. our form of language. And like, also it was a, it was, pretty weird because the all the sign language studies were done sort of without the input of people who actually use sign language so uh, the <laughs> deaf community was not super involved with these experiments and, and mm. sign language is not just like verbal language that's been put on your hands it's it's got its whole own unique syntax and like mm-hmm. it, it's a very unique language itself and so we have this idea that you can just kind of take another um, either form of language or a different type of intelligence and then plaster it over our own or, or use some kind of translation technique and then kind of just be able to understand it or communicate by doing that. But I think we have to be more flexible in that and we would have to figure out how to meet them at least halfway, right? How do you, how do you communicate with a primate without forcing it into learning a human language, how do we kind of figure out what their communication style is? Can we actually meet them somewhere in the middle there? Kind of like, I feel like anyone who owns a pet has experienced this, where it's like, if you try to talk to your dog using English, like, hey, don't do that. (laughs) You know, they don't know what what you're talking about. You know, they might respond to your tone of voice a little bit, but ultimately they don't understand. But if you learn kind of their method of communication, right? Like, I've learned sometimes when my dog is upset, if I just sort of comfortingly say like, oh, it's okay, like that doesn't do anything. But if I do a dog body language thing, like do sort of a play bow or do a little sort of a, a play bark or something, that actually perks her up. That that gets her to calm down more because- I think we have to hear you speak dog. <laughs> Let's hear, what's a play bark sound like? It sounds like, ah, ah, ah. <laughs> and she loves that. And so you're kind of like, so you're using your, uh, and you know, she's coming halfway to me, right? Because she knows when I say sit, stay, you know, so she's trying to understand me. So I owe it to her to try to understand her. And I think that is a lesson we can learn from our own animals. If we're ever fortunate enough to actually come into contact with aliens, I think we need to uh, really understand that we may have to work very hard to reach a midway point where we can both be understood. And we might still have to pick up their poop, even after all that. (laughs) Uh, But alien poop might be nice, like smell like flowers. (laughs) Or pancakes, yeah, or communion wafers or something. What if if pancakes has just been alien poops the whole time? (laughs) What if pancakes are aliens and we've been eating them and they're mad? No, I think the takeaway is... That you're saying intelligence may not be that unusual, but even intelligence here on Earth, it's hard to cross that barrier from our sort of mental frame to theirs. 
which makes me less less enthusiastic or less optimistic that we could learn to communicate with aliens unless of course we fall in love with them first <laughs> i i am still optimistic that we could i think it would just take a it would take a kind of flexibility like we can't necessarily just expect to be able to decrypt some kind of alien language we may have to figure out an entirely new method of communication but i think it can be done um now Back to this wonderful nudibranch. I did promise I was going to talk about piles of snot, and here we go. So uh, <laughs> Malibe Colmani, which is one of these weird nudibranchs, the ones that look like a pancake mixed with one of those like sticky hands that you throw at the wall, uh, they are found near Malaysia, and it is dubbed the holy grail of nudibranchs because a lot of nature photographers think it is the weirdest looking thing, also the hardest to actually spot. Uh, wow. It is described as looking like a pile of strings or snot. So its body is actually mostly transparent, like really weirdly transparent, almost completely see-through except for this network of tubes visible throughout its ghostly body. It's kind of like, do you know the uh, bodies exhibition where they show like the human circulatory system just kind of like on its own? Uh, it kind of looks like that. I've never been to the bodies exhibit because it scares the pants off of me. I couldn't. Uh, but it, this is like that like you see this network of tubes and it just it doesn't look like it has a body because it's so translucent uh the tubes that you're seeing are actually digestive glands uh and this see-through appearance and then these digestive glands uh, may act as camouflage making the nudibranch look like just a pile of debris nothing interesting it looks to me like some sort of delicate fungus like yeah. it might be good on pizza. <laughs> it would be a very interesting mouthfeel to eat one of these, I bet. <laughs> What's interesting about this and makes me think of aliens is that when you look at this, what all we're really seeing are its digestive glands uh, because that's all we can see. And so our understanding of what this creature is is only based on the thing that we can see. And I know that in... Uh, in astrophysics and particle physics, sometimes it's hard to see something or our perception of the thing that we're seeing in the universe is made more complex by the fact that we're only seeing a part of the truth and then the real meat of the thing, whether it's like a black hole or uh, a planetary body, is is only really defined by the stuff that we see around it, the stuff that we we see that is visible. Like we can see the outline of this sea slug by its digestive system, but we can't actually see the flesh of the sea slug. It's sort of weird. I always wonder why things become transparent. Like evolutionarily, why would you want people to get to see your inner bits? It sort of makes you more vulnerable or like they know like where to bite you. Uh, to get you, it seems to be like a it's a it's a nice defense layer to not be transparent. It's an interesting idea because a lot of times transparency helps as sort of pattern disruption, right? So if you are, say, nudibranch shaped, uh, something that sees you is going to 
have an instinct to go after that pattern. Like this is a pattern I recognize. This slug shape is good. It's like when you see something that is vaguely bagel shaped or spaghetti shaped, you're like, that's food. I eat that. But then if it's sort of transparent, but you only see the inner workings of it, especially when it's kind of like huddled up somewhere. Like with these photos, the photographers are intentionally trying to get it against a more neutral background so that you can actually see what it is. But in the first photo, you can see it's kind of just intermingled with a bunch of coral. And so because there's no clear pattern to this thing, it's not necessarily going to register. So even if you could technically see its inner workings, it has disrupted the typical pattern that predators look for. And so you actually see this also in frogs, like uh, glass frogs that are transparent. Like to us, it's like, oh, well, you can see all of its little organs going. Like you would know where to, if you were a froggy murderer, you'd know exactly where to stab. (laughs) But if you're a predator, you're not really looking for a frog heart. You are looking for frog shape. And if that's not pattern matching to what you imagine a frog to look like, you are less likely to have your uh, predator instinct uh, triggered, and then you are not going to go after it. So tell me about this weird thing. What ma- what about this makes you feel like aliens? What gives you an alien vibe about this? Just because it's weird, or is there something specifically about it that if you saw it, you think like, is this extraterrestrial? I think what makes me think about aliens is if we ever find an alien, there may be parts of the alien that are not visible to us or detectable to us oh. and only other only certain other parts of the aliens like what if we are only able to see certain aspects of the alien and we think that we we either don't recognize it as alien life or don't recognize that hey this is just its digestive system whereas the rest of it is either not visible uh, or some other kind of weird thing going on. I mean, like, you know, there's a lot of uh, weird stuff uh, in the universe like uh, that I I barely understand in terms of matter. (laughs) Uh, Now, in terms of biology, I find it difficult to believe that an animal could exist on some other dimension than just one. But, you know, there's so much I don't know about the universe and especially like how life could be presented in the universe that I could believe that we might, if we ever see an alien, we might only see sort of traces of it or evidence that it's there, but then we can't actually Mm -hmm. see Mm -hmm. the alien itself because it is not, it exists in a way that is not perceivable by our eyes or by our instruments. And maybe even these weird little guys have aspects to them that we can't see. Who mm. knows? I mean, we are always discovering new things about animals that we even know about that are not visible to us. There are animals that biofluoresce that we are just discovering, not because we lacked the technology to see it before, but because we lacked the creativity to collect a bunch of roadkill and then flash UV lights on it to see if they <laughs> glowed. And now that we're doing that... We're finding a lot of animals biofluoresce that we didn't realize that they did, and we had no way of knowing until we actually looked for it. What kind of roadkill? What kind of roadkill glows in the dark? Well, I mean, platypuses glow in the dark. I think wombats glow in the dark. I think Tasmanian devils, sharks, some species of shark, uh, some species of frog. So, yeah, there's a lot. 
it's a great lesson that even critters here on Earth can do things that we can't imagine. And so, of course, aliens might be doing even stranger things out there. Right, exactly. Well, we are going to take a quick break, but when we get back, we're going to look at a pretty fishy alien. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. So we are talking now about Anomalops Catoptron. Uh, in the light of the day or in a flashlight, this looks like a pretty normal fish. It's not that exciting. It, so why am I bringing it up? I don't know. I want to bore you. Uh, so it <laughs> grows to be about 14 inches long or 35 centimeters. It has brownish scales, black fins. Um, and other than having pretty large eyes, it's really not that interesting looking, but it doesn't really live in the sunlight. It is actually found in the Western and Central Pacific Ocean at depths up to 1,300 feet or around 400 meters. And it lives mostly in sort of dark caves and in the dark, they look really spooky They look like fishy aliens with evil glowing eyes. It is also known as the split fin flashlight fish, which shows you that scientists aren't exactly always wordsmiths. (laughs) We know scientists are terrible at coming up with names for things, but this one does look like a really creepy fish. It looks like a fish somebody stepped on and it got mad. Yeah, I mean, the thing that strikes me about the eyes is, you know, sort of like our perception of, of what a an alien looks like, the cartoon alien. It's like maybe a gray head and then two sort of mean gl- green glowing eyes. They kind of have the Spider-Man mask look on them where it's like, you know, just these angry green eyes and they're glowing and they're big. And this looks exactly like that. This just looks like the angry alien eyes that I see sort of in cartoonish depictions of aliens. (laughs) And that tells you something about like our whole vision of aliens. You know, when people reach for the concept of an alien, maybe they're really just thinking about the weirdest kind of critter they've ever seen, which means we haven't even really done the job imaginationally of coming up with an idea that is truly beyond our planet. I have a completely unverified theory about glowing alien, big glowing alien eyes, mm-hmm. and that I think it taps into maybe a fear we had going way back of eyes that we could see at dusk or at night that would glow. Uh, have that? It's eyes that glow at night that belong to like mammals, uh, usually big cats. Uh, it, they glow because they have something called the Tapetum lucidum, uh, and its light kind of enters the eye and it does this double refraction so that you get more light in the eye so they can see better, but also that light is reflected back out, and that's why the light glows. But a lot of predators have this so they can see at night. And so, us as either early humans 
or human ancestors, like when you see big glowing eyes at night, that's a predator probably looking mm -hmm. at you, especially if they're front facing glowing eyes, that's probably from some kind of predator that's, uh, you know, stalking you. And so I think that big glowing eyes probably inspire a bit of fear in us that might go back way, way before we ever even had a concept of aliens. And so you're saying if we meet the aliens and their eyes glow, they're more likely to be predators. <laughs> if their eyes face forward, they're also more likely to be predators. So anything that uh -oh. looks like us, we should be afraid of. <laughs> <laughs> if humans get off that ship, then run, run. <laughs> So these glowing eyes are actually not eyes at all. These are glowing sacs of bioluminescent bacteria. Yuck. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, like a kombucha that kind of got out of hand. <laughs> Am I allowed to say yuck to kombucha also? Sure. I'm not on the kombucha train. Look, I, I, I'm very sensitive to like strong flavors, especially strong sour flavors. I can't deal with yogurt. I think that uh, I think it has I have some instinctive response to something that tastes spoiled and I get a kind of mm -hmm. gag reflex. So, no, I get it. Uh, <laughs> but w the weird thing about this, right, I just told you that these aren't eyes. But if you look at that uh, gif that I sent you, I'll also make all of these available in the show notes. Um, it is blinking. It's blinking that big glowing knot and eyeball. So it actually has a flap of skin and muscle that can contract and blink. So you look at this and you're like, oh, maybe this is just a bioluminescent patch. But then it blinks at you and it really looks like an eyeball. Uh, <laughs> now, it, is, it has puzzled researchers for a long time as to why they can blink these eyes. There are currently a few theories but Daniel, do you have any ideas for why they might want to blink this bioluminescent patch? Yeah, I think they're charging up their laser beams to fry you. That's what <laughs> it looks like to me. I mean, they do. I think it's a fully. I think it's a fully operational death fish. I mean, it looks that way, and also the eyes look angry. They look not just angry; they look malevolent. They look like they little demon fish that are plotting our downfall. Well. So this blinking is not done like how we blink our eyes. So we blink our eyes mainly to sort of re-moisturize them, to clean them so that we don't go around and just get sticky dust and junk in our very delicate, sensitive eyes all the time. This blinking seems to be a mysterious Morse code that changes depending on what they are looking at. So... It seems to be both a form of communication, camouflage, and also to be able to hunt their prey. Fortunately for us, they hunt zooplankton at this time and not people. <laughs> what if some of your listeners are zooplankton? Now yeah. they're freaked out. Oh, I apologize to all my zooplankton listeners, but <laughs> they're so small, they can't rate my podcast. So I'm not too worried about that. Um, <laughs> hey, look, downloads are downloads, all right? <laughs> so researchers have found that these fish blink at different rates when presented with prey, with predators, and in the company of their school, their group of fish. 
So these blinking rates seem to have an impact on the behavior of their school. So like they, they seem to blink at different rates and that changes which direction the school goes, whether they stay or whether they kind of dart off in another direction. And we haven't really decoded what the flashlight fish's Morse code is, uh, but we suspect it has some kind of communication with its school and it's also blinking when a predator's around to sort of put it off its track, like blinking at a rate that confuses the predator. And then it also blinks when it is around its prey so that it can see the prey, uh, but also doesn't scare off the prey. Well, I'm glad there's some explanation for this creepiness. I love the angle on these eyes, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, classic, like, classic bad guy, you know, uh, glowing <laughs> evil eyes. I just, I do love that we know they have a Morse code and we suspect that they are communicating with it, but we don't know what it is yet. And mm. I really wonder what we will find out if we ever decode this blinking uh, language that these fish have and what they've been saying about us behind our backs. Maybe we should show it to Noam Chimsky and maybe the chimp can, can decode it. Right? Maybe all these other creatures on Earth are speaking a language that we don't understand. They're I all do, talking about us. I do love the idea of Nim Chimsky becoming a linguist, but also a chimpanzee at the same time. <laughs> I want to I see Chomsky versus Chimsky. <laughs> I mean, if Nim Chimsky wasn't, I believe, dead at this point, uh, that would be no contest. That chimp would definitely win. I mean, <laughs> Chomsky. What are you talking about? <laughs> Chomsky's still sharp. We've had him on our podcast. Oh, you mean in a debate? About aliens. In a debate, maybe Noam Chomsky yeah. would win. If it was a wrestling match, Noam oh, Chomsky God. would be torn to shreds. <laughs> That's terrible. I don't even want to imagine I Chomsky wrestling, <laughs> wrestling a chimp. Oh, my god! I know. If you've seen Noam Chomsky recently, he looks like a very ancient Santa Claus, and I feel very protective. <laughs> uh, I will protect him from chimps. <laughs> I'm going to go have a communion wafer to cleanse my mental palate after that image. <laughs> didn't you, you got, um, didn't you get a statement from Noam Chomsky at one point for one of your books? Yeah, absolutely. He was on our podcast and we were talking to him about how to communicate with aliens wow. and whether they are likely to speak our language or use mathematics. Uh, he's a surprisingly responsive guy. You could just email him and he writes back. Oh, that's so nice. He's such a sweet guy. I feel bad he that is. I even imagined a chimpanzee harming Noam Chomsky. <laughs> <laughs> You've offended me and all the zooplankton listeners. And really, who else is left? <laughs> Please don't tell Noam Chomsky that I talked about Noam Chomsky tearing him limb from limb. I don't think he would appreciate that. <laughs> we wish him nothing but the best. Exactly. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. So now on to our last alien-looking animal. 
I'm actually not sure. I feel like I'm between this looking like an alien or looking more like a galaxy or a quasar. This is the lion's mane jellyfish, and it is one of the largest jellyfish in the world and one of the longest animals in the world. How big is it? I can see from the picture that it's like long and beautiful, but I can't tell if it's like three inches long or like 30 feet long. Yeah, so there's a whole range of these jellyfish, and a lot of the jellyfish that will be found will be smaller, but there are ones that can grow to gargantuan sizes. So the bell, which is that cup-like shape uh, on the top of the jellyfish, uh, grows up to 2.1 meters or 7 feet in diameter. And its tentacles can grow to be around 37 meters or 120 feet long. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Wow. And they have over a thousand tentacles. Uh, it, so it just looks like this forest of things. It looks like, I mean, when you look, when we look at the colorized photos of other galaxies or, you know, just uh, these like clouds of uh, material in the universe, to me, it kind of looks a little bit like this thing. But if this thing is like meters and meters long and there's thousands of them, then you're telling me it's like tens of thousands of total tentacle for a single for a single critter. So if each tentacle is like 37 meters and there's thousands of them, then you have like 37,000 total meters uh, yeah. of tentacle. Yeah, you could probably wrap one of these guys around like the moon. Um, <laughs> not that I'm saying you should. That would be animal cruelty. But uh, yeah, and it, they do contain stinging cells. Uh, which sounds like a super bad time. Fortunately, the lion mane jelly's sting is not that potent, so it's not that dangerous to humans. In fact, in small amounts, it may just feel kind of like a tingling, warm sensation, maybe followed by a bit of discomfort. With a lot of contact, like if you just dive, put your whole body into the forest of its tentacles, then you're probably going to have a bad time. Yeah, uh, <laughs> You're probably going to experience a good amount of pain. And you'll probably want to go to a hospital, if not just to check in on why you are diving into a forest <laughs> of tentacles. Um, but these actually don't really kill people. Uh, it's really rare that it hurts people that badly because they just really aren't that potent. Um mm. But they are so huge, they can have a number of victims that they annoy. Uh, a single lion's mane jellyfish is so large, one specimen that kind of disintegrated, it broke up, ended up stinging over 150 people at a beach in Rye, New Hampshire. So wow. this thing just kind of like broke up and all of its stinging um tentacles and everything started floating around and just 150 people ended up in this dead jellyfish soup and got stung. See, see I'm telling you, it's kilometers of pain. It's incredible. <laughs> kilometers of pain. That sounds like a really moody book by like... <laughs> by a jellyfish alien. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and when it's out of the water, in the water, it just looks like this weird spectral floaty ectoplasmic thing and out of the water it 
kind of loses its form. It's so gelatinous and so sticky. It just kind of turns into what looks like a pile of liquid jelly. Um, and it is, it's just very, it's a very strange looking thing. Now, if you Google uh, lion's mane jellyfish, you might see a photo of it that it's actually photoshopped where like it's this tiny scuba diver next to this giant uh, jellyfish. I think the jellyfish itself is a real photo. They've just like made the scale, make it look more impressive. But that photo is fake. However, like I said before, they can get to be huge. So I don't know why people put out fake stuff about animals that are really actually extremely cool. Yeah, exactly. The reality is weird enough, people. Exactly, exactly. But like, do you think, because like this thing makes me think of just a an entire galaxy or quasar if there is a, an an animal or an intelligence that arises out of like a massive amount of material out there in the galaxy if they have some kind of communication or relationship uh, in terms of like physics what like I think there's this idea of like well what if you could have some kind of consciousness that's like this big mm -hmm. thing that arises from these these um, maybe planetary bodies or stars in space that are responding to each other and communicating via these sort of like the just the laws of astrophysics. Well, if that's the case, it would be thinking extremely slowly because remember, there's a speed limit to how fast information can move through the universe, the speed of light. And so if something is really, really big, it'd have to think basically really, really slow because like a thought would take you know, a thousand years to cross from one side of its brain to another if it's a thousand light years wide. So it'd be pretty hard to have a conversation with like a galaxy-sized jellyfish. It'd be like talking to a tree ant or something. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's really interesting to be because, you know, if, if that is the case, you know, that would explain why we don't have a galaxy talking to us like, hey, humans, yeah, we're over here. But it also reminds me of in animals, there is this concept of sort of a different way that different animals experience time. So it's something called flicker fusion rate, which is like the amount of information you can receive before it all starts to kind of blend together. So the amount of frames per second you can experience. So mm. something like a fly, one of the reasons you can't catch it, like smack it, is that it can experience a lot of frames per second, um, which actually slows things down for it. And then having mm. fewer frames of a second actually speeds things up. So something like a fly uh, is experiencing things really slowly. So when you try to slap it down, uh, it sees your hand moving towards it, you know, really slowly. This this is the theory behind like flicker fusion rate. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas something like an elephant actually uh, is seeing, you know, potentially has a sees things happening much faster around it. So uh, it is maybe seeing like smaller animals just kind of like, you know, going high speed around it, whereas it's moving very slowly and it's got a lower frame rate and uh, and it maybe is experiencing uh, all the world around it going really fast, um, whereas it's going at its own pace. So it's that's an interesting idea for me to be applied to like what if there are aliens out there or some kind of alien intelligence that spans over some 
large area in a in a non-conventional way that we we don't think of intelligence as something that could happen outside of just like an animal or organic creature but there could be some huge intelligence it's just thinking so slowly and on such a slower rate we can't really communicate with it yeah exactly i feel that way as i get older like <laughs> younger kids just like flip by me and i'm just like what was that oh that was my toddler I <laughs> Yeah, no, that's that's how I feel like with language. Like I used to be able to catch on to slang a lot faster, but now it's like, wait, we're not saying fleek anymore, really? <laughs> By the time you and I are saying it, it's definitely it's gone. Definitely not, it's, not cool anymore. <laughs> in fact, it might be because we're saying it that it's no longer cool. <laughs> that's how you know it's jumped the shark. <laughs> well, before we go, uh, we do have to play a little game called... The mystery animal sound game, or guess who's squawking? So every week I play a mystery animal sound, and you, the guest, and you, the listener, try to guess who is making that sound. It could be any animal on Earth or outside of Earth. I'm not. I'm just <laughs> saying, if we ever hear aliens, they're fair game for this game. So. Uh, oh Last week's mystery animal sound hint was this. This is one peeved, pissed, particularly provoked pond paddler. Did you hear that? I did. (laughs) It sounds like some kind of bird in distress. (laughs) I'm going to say it's a heron. You're weirdly close, but also weirdly far away. Um... Because this is the platypus. So congratulations to Auntie B and Joey P, who I think are the reigning champions of the animal guessing game. Um, So the platypus is a monotreme found in Australia. Like a heron, it lays eggs and it actually has a bill. Uh, But unlike the heron, it is a mammal. Uh, These are warm-blooded mammals that lay eggs. Uh, this is the same thing that other monotremes do. So monotremes include platypuses and echidnas. Um, and in a lot of ways, they are like the rest of mammals, but in some ways they are very strange, such as laying their eggs. And also they do not have nipples, uh, but they do provide their young with milk. And they do that by releasing the milk through pores in their skin. Uh, Another weird platypus thing is that males have venomous spurs on their hind legs that are incredibly painful, uh, probably worse than the lion mane jelly. So you have more to worry about in terms of getting stung from a cute little platypus than you do from a gargantuan jellyfish. So the best thing about platypuses, in my opinion, is that they have electroreception. They can actually sense small electrical impulses through the water with an organ in its bill. And it can locate prey such as worms or other invertebrates, even in muddy water, by detecting the electrical pulses of their muscle movements. So that is an incredible thing with these platypuses. And it makes me wonder if like, there are aliens out there that have senses that humans don't have that makes Mm -hmm. it easier for them to see us but we can't see them wow exactly yeah there might be parts of the universe that they can see that we can't and so 
we might like weirdly glow in their senses. I just, I wonder if there's like a corner of the universe where all the other life is and they're having a big old party. They have like, you know, an interplanetary convention and we're just not invited because we're too far away. Oh, I know. Oh, or, or maybe we're just not cool. We're not saying the right <laughs> kind of slang. That's, that is planetary levels of FOMO. I cannot handle that. <laughs> well, I do know from a physics perspective that every time we look deep into the universe, we find something weird and new and totally surprising that nobody on Earth anticipated. So I expect that if we ever do get to see the surface of alien planets, the same thing will happen. So on to this week's mystery animal sound, the hint... Uh, is this a tiny wolf or something else? So, Daniel, do you have any guesses as to what <laughs> this is? That sounds, that sounds like a koala bear taking communion as it gets on a UFO. <laughs> you I may have be, no idea. <laughs> you may be right, but you will only find out on next week's Creature Feature... Uh, Daniel, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, listeners, if you think you know what this week's mystery animal sound is, you can write to me at creaturefeaturepod at gmail.com. Daniel, where can people find out more about you and about the universe? You can come check out our podcast at Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe, a production of iHeartRadio, wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, if you're enjoying the show and you leave a rating or review, I read all of them. I print them out. I plaster my walls with them. And it is making my husband very nervous as to how it's going with me. <laughs> uh, and thanks. So be nice, y'all. Be nice when you leave a rating. There's real people out there reading them. <laughs> And thanks to the Space Cossacks for their super awesome song, Exolumina. Creature Feature is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts like the one you just heard, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or hey, guess what? Wherever you listen to your favorite shows. See you next Wednesday. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.